Ever stop to think who does science? Short answer, scientists. Long answer, a diverse population of peoples from all races, genders, religions, orientations, and walks of life. But not all of those groups and peoples are equally represented. So today we're going to explore the gender divide in science. My name is Louis Colavertolo, a male grad student at the University of Guelph, doing a whole bunch of things that hopefully will eventually get me a PhD in food science. And I will be talking with Emma Douster, a female grad student working towards a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Massachusetts. Emma studies mice, but makes gender a key factor in her studies. We're not here today to talk about the mice, although Emma can barely stop herself from talking about mice. We are going to talk about women in science, women doing science, and science about women. Before we get started with the show, it's critical that I quickly address the fact that today's show speaks mostly to the struggles of gender and science. My perspective as a male not only affects my understanding of these struggles, but also my ability to learn about the differences between men and women. And Emma is a woman in science and can only speak about her experiences and reflections about women in science. So the chat you're about to listen to today is influenced by our experiences. So it's our goal to have a conversation with each other that not only respects all groups of people that are involved in the participation of science, but also acknowledges the fact that we certainly have some biases behind what we say. We can't speak for everyone, and we certainly don't know everything. And that's why you're listening to We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Emma. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? I am great over here. Could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? All right. So I got my Bachelor's of Science in Biology from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in the Neuroscience and Behavior Program. Those are a lot of like $5 words. <laughs> Uh, so you study neuroscience, and I think that's some fascinating stuff. Our brain is weird. I barely understand my brain, and that's my brain trying to say that. But right. <laughs> we're not going to talk too much about neuroscience today. What is our topic for the day, Emma? We're going to talk about gender and science Interesting. and interact. All right. So uh, you have a long history of looking at gender in science. Can you just give us the timeline? Uh, well, it started way back in the day, about 2012. Um, I was in high school, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and I was really excited about getting into research because, you know, in high school, it's the first time in your life when you have to start thinking about uh, making choices for yourself after the government doesn't mandate that you go to school. Um, so I wanted to know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and thought science sounds pretty cool. And I went to um, some researchers that I happened to know as, as family friends because I grew up in, in Maryland. I was right outside of the National Institutes of Health. So um, I was very conveniently located to have all of these resources right at my fingertips. And I asked a woman who um, was a respected researcher at the NIH, I said, hey, how, how do I get into research? I'm really excited about uh, starting up a, a scientific career. And she said, 
Oh no, you don't want to go into research. The lab is no place. You're so beautiful. The lab is dirty and you're going to want to have children. It's really not a place for you. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm in research, but I wouldn't recommend it for a young girl like you. You know, you have your whole life ahead of you. You should really think about a different avenue. So, so to clarify, this is a woman in the research field telling you these things. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, what happened next? So that was my first attempt at joining a lab. <laughs> and I kind of took all of that in and said, okay, well, thank you so much for, for your advice. And I moved on and asked somebody else. <laughs> yeah, that's what you got to do. You got to that. Now, as a scientist, you know, increase the sample size. Exactly. Ask more people. Yeah. Yeah. So the second person I asked was a man who was also in research. And he said, oh, you're interested in research. Why don't you read these books about research? And I said, OK, well, um, that's that's not a job, but thank <laughs> you. <laughs> so I read those books. They were interesting. Um, but the third person I asked said, now I don't have a position in my lab, but I know this one person who is, uh, has an excellent history in mentoring and, and th they should definitely consider you for their lab. So by the fifth person I talked to, I found my home in a, in a research institution. I was very happy with, with this amazing mentor, um, who was a woman. So this was my first, my first scientific mentor. And uh, that's just a lesson in, in persistence uh, to start off, that you can't just expect things will, will come with the first person you ask. You have, to, you have to keep going if you really want something. Yeah, I imagine. I could bet that a lot of people have their dreams squashed from like one of the single experiences that you had. So like bravo for you for pursuing through all that. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's not special to me. We all we've all gone through something like that. Uh, but but the part that sticks with me is the idea from from the first person I asked that a woman should not be in the lab. And that kind of um, framed most of my research since then. So um, the lab that I worked in initially, I was looking at single cell organisms, and we don't need to get into the science uh, in this uh, discussion today. But um, that just wasn't really enough for me. I wanted to know how how the cells actually influence behavior. So I went on to work in a neuroscience lab um, in undergrad, and my advisor was amazing. Um, but and and it was a very interesting dynamic because it was a, a male advisor, but the entire lab was female. All of the grad students, the postdoc, the undergrads, we were all women. So I was surrounded by by women scientists. But when we were doing our experiments, we were only looking at males. And that was the first time where I realized that the, the scientist and the science are related. It's not the unbiased picture that everyone paints in your head about how, how research is completely impartial and, and you don't put any of your personal experiences into your work because that wouldn't be scientific. Um, it, it actually does matter who's conducting the experiments, because if there's a bunch of men asking questions, they're probably going to focus on 
male answers. And there's a lot of history where women have been or females have been just completely excluded from experiments with the assumption that all of the results would be the same. Um, and recently there have been studies that found that those results are not always the same. So that led me to my current lab where I study uh, the difference between males and females in rats so that we can figure out how um, to create better treatments for, for male and female humans. Yeah, because when it comes down to it, the, the men and the women are different. I think if uh, in one part that you, you said that I really liked is he said the person that is asking the questions influence the questions that are asked. I mean, you know, whenever we study arts and when we study literature, we always talk about what the author's personal life was like. You know, if anyone's going to say The Bell Jar was written by Sylvia Plath, we never neglect the fact to talk about Sylvia Plath and her personal life when we talk about The Bell Jar. So why don't we talk more about the people that publish the science? That's such a great point. I mean, it's I, that might even be why I gravitated toward research and science in the first place, because it's sold as such a such a fantasy world where the there is no need to discuss the person behind the curtain. But you're right. You're completely right. Whenever we analyze anything else, we talk about where it comes from and who's who's creating this product. So it is fascinating that science is um, very disconnected from that. Yeah, and beyond the fact that we're just disconnected from the person, the proportions of men and women in science is still staggeringly different, isn't it? Yeah, so so it is very interesting. Um, there are increasing numbers of women in STEM fields, specifically when you get closer to um, neuroscience is, is much more female uh, heavy than something like math or engineering, but it's still, you know, we, we can always have room to grow. The main drop off that currently we see is when it gets to tenured positions, because there is interest we're seeing from people who are academically and intellectually equal, but once they get into the stages of life where they want to have a family, and take care of that family, and they might not have the support to, you know, make sure that that family and career are both maintained equally um, when it comes to males and females. Um, there's a huge drop off um, among yeah. tenured faculty in, in females and males. Yeah, could you do us a quick favor and just kind of explain what tenure is in the academic sense? That's a great question. So. Um, in academia, uh, when you work at a university, you there's different stages where you have a different ability to get fired. Basically, um, <laughs> <laughs> when the 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 pinnacle uh, for for many people is to reach tenured, which means that it's a lot harder for them to fire you. And um, I believe there's a pay increase, and and there's all sorts of of great benefits that go along with. Um, you know, that, that fancy title, but essentially you're, you're working and working and working and, and fulfilling all of these various requirements so that when you go up for review as to whether you can get tenure or not, um, they say, yes, we'd like to keep having this person on our payroll and educating um, the undergraduate students. 
Yeah, that it's kind of this trial by fire. And I've heard from so many people in the academic field that are trying to get tenure that they say, like, these are the five hardest years of your life because they want you to publish. They want you to get funding. They want you to apply for grants, win grants, teach courses, write new material. And it just seems so difficult. And I, I often think to myself, like, oh, my God, what I'm doing right now is so difficult. I'm so tired. But then you look at people trying to get tenure. And it's like, what is keeping them awake through the day? That is right. something else. So if, uh, you know, I wanted tenure, I would, you know, work towards it. And uh, eventually I might be able to get my tenure if I have a good enough track record. But I have a significant advantage being a man is that I don't necessarily have a biological clock that's ticking in which I want to plan around certain life events. So you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Uh, what is that intersection between being a woman and uh, achieving tenure? Um, it, it is interesting. It's different for every person, um, but I, uh, I, have, I have some experience with my advisor who is pre-tenure and uh, just had a baby a few years ago while I was in her lab. And, um, you know, there's, there's definitely this expectation that you're constantly publishing, you need, you need papers every year, um, and you have to bring new people into the lab and, and make sure that those people are trained. So all of the things that you mentioned that a, an advisor needs to do, but on top of that, they need to be mentoring all of like a, a, a large group of people. And she had so much pressure on her that the, the norm, the societal norm is nothing should change. You know, you can have a baby that's totally fine, but, um, you know, you're not going to get fired or anything, but you still need to be productive. You still need to be churning out papers. You still need to be mentoring people. So I kept trying to have a conversation with her about, okay, I know you're pregnant. I know you're going to have a baby. What is the deal with your maternity leave? When should I give you space? And when are you coming back? And her response was always, nothing's going to change. Everything will be exactly the same. Don't worry because this, this changes nothing. And that's kind of the pressure that's put on her to, to feel that way and try to be that way. And of course, everything changes, you know, you, you physically need to recover from something like that. And then you have someone else that can't take care of themselves. So you know, the, the expectation that you're going to be exactly as productive and exactly as available as you were before is is completely, it, it doesn't make any sense. That is it's something else. Like, I can barely take care of myself. <laughs> I can only imagine, like, taking care of another human being. And, and it, you are right. It changes a lot of things. And, you know, honestly, this is a topic that you and I both have not experienced. Right. So we can only look at it from the outside. And from the outside, it looks really difficult. Yeah, I'm not trying to do that anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, my goodness. So, so trying to get the tenure, it's this really tough job. Um, and you were saying that the, the proportions of males with tenure and females with tenure is different than the proportion of males without tenure and females without tenure. Yeah, I mean, um, there there is a, a slow drop off. The real point where, where you see a difference between male and female accomplishment on the academic tenure track is at that decision point when you when you reach tenure versus you don't reach tenure. And that is roughly the age. I mean... There's, there's a lot of people who say, okay, well, 
you need to focus on your career because first you're, you need to get through grad school and then you need to get through your postdoc position. So right after you get your doctoral degree, that's your postdoc. Um, and you can do that for a year to 10 years to the rest of your life. You know, that's, that's a phase where if you want to be a professor, maybe a few years, and then you move on to a, an associate or assistant professor and, and then you're working in those five years to get tenure. So there's um, there's a lot of pressure of if I want to have a kid, I'll just wait until I get to this point, to the next point, to the next point. And then at some point, your body is telling you you cannot wait any longer because you literally will not be able to have children if you keep waiting. So that's, that is the time when a lot of people will decide, okay, it's finally time. At least I'm in a relatively stable position and I'm, I'm just going to have a kid. And then that, that leads to a huge drop off. And there, I'm, I want to be clear that it, it doesn't necessarily lead to that drop off, but there is an association. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, you know, speaking scientifically, we can't say necessarily that there is a direct causation. We have to say that there is more of a correlation. I mean, you could say you could say that women um, have a better idea of what they want. And so they don't want to go through all of that torture of going up for tenure review. So they leave the system then. But uh, there, there could be many explanations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in order to figure that out, we would have to do a serious study that revolves around gender. And I think if, if we were bringing back something we said earlier, you would probably need uh, more female designed questions in order to really probe into that interface like a little bit better than if uh, if I came up with all those questions. I can't possibly know what that experience is like. So why would I write those questions? Exactly. So you are actively working towards bringing gender into your science. Can you walk us through a little bit of that? It's really hard because you get pushback at every level. And I personally am studying uh, females and males comparatively so that we can get more information about not just how males function or not just how females function, but how we can use the information that we've gained from these years and years of male studies and apply them to anyone other than male. The part that I'm struggling with the most right now is getting beyond the binary. So there is a gender binary that a lot of people grow up with um, that a male is one option and a female is the other option and that is it. So if you go beyond the binary, you can get into any any number of options that you don't have to be restricted to male or female because we have so right now we're still under 50% of studies that are being conducted in both males and females. And so we still have so much more to travel. We, so, we have so much farther to travel in terms of getting uh, females in the picture. And then when you go beyond that, there's almost no studies that, that even acknowledge that there's anything other than, well, this is your genitalia and that's their genitalia. So male and female, bing, bing, boom, you know? And, uh, and, and we actually do studies that can be very applicable to uh, people in the transgender community, for instance. There's 
there's studies when when you start incorporating females, some people will gonadectomize their animals. So you remove either the ovaries or the testes, and then um, you can give hormonal injections that um, will allow you to to do manipulations to see really how are they different and, and what is causing that difference. And these kinds of studies could be applicable to a lot of people, but nobody wants to talk about all of these other options of, of what people experience in life. There is such a large difference between man and woman, but what about the in-between? So one thing that I think is interesting just off the top of my head is that I know medications work very different for men and women. So, you know, it's because our metabolism is different. And this is seen in so many places, but a little bit, you know, brushed to the side. I think one good example is that a lot of times when you read nutritional things, they say men need 2,300 calories a day and women need 1,800 calories a day. There's a reason. It's not just because men like to eat more. There are, you know, metabolical, the way that we process food that's different. So the way we process medications are different. But now that you're bringing this up, this beyond the nine, beyond the, beyond the binary, I'm wondering, like, what about a, a person who might be transitioning through one gender to the next? I imagine the medications are going to hit them so differently. And should they be taking a medication for um, their chosen gender or should they be taking a medication for their assigned gender? This is a huge question, and I want to I wanna even dive deeper into this and say that there are so many factors that influence why a medication would, would act differently in a, a male or a female or anyone, and that's what I study, actually, is um, I, I study Ritalin and Stratera, and I, I'm trying to figure out if they have different influences in males and females because your brain cells that release different chemicals in your brain, they are different in males and females. And the amount of that chemical that's circulating through your brain is different in males and females. And so just that alone, I'm, I'm looking into crazy things like, uh, does, does that chemical have the ability to act in different ways in, in males and females in different parts of your brain? And again, we're not going into the science. I can't help myself, but Anyways, there are so many differences in how we process medications just between males and females that are unknown or are currently being investigated. But then you go beyond that and start to change. I have no idea if the, the cells in your brain are going to change when you do these kinds of treatments. Um, I think that's a really interesting question that needs to be asked because uh, as as with many things, you know, the, the treatment comes out, we're taking it. We're not entirely sure how it works, but we know that it does sometimes work. So it's better than nothing. And now we have to do the, the back work and try to figure out, okay, now what is actually happening in your brain when you take this medicine? Um, and, and so you've got the the difference in the cells and the neurotransmitter the the chemicals that are circulating through your brain but then beyond that when these treatments are being developed they're often being tested on a certain population of people you're excluding very frequently anyone who has the potential to become pregnant 
So I would never be able to be in that study because I am a currently fertile female. And so I have no idea how these drugs are going to affect my body because I haven't been tested and no one like me has been tested on, on this product. And, and it, it doesn't make any sense because there are plenty of women who are fertile but are not planning to conceive ever. And they should be uh, involved in these studies, but we have no, we have no data on, on a lot of populations. You know, I when I think about it, I've been a part of a few scientific studies over the time because one, sometimes they pay real good, but also, um, you know, they're they're kind of fun to contribute to science with uh, things that you can easily donate, like your blood or your saliva or things like that. And I know that I I was talking with a group of friends. I was like, oh, we're all going to sign up for this study. It's going to be so awesome. You know, we're doing this. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we're going to all sign up. And then I remember the next day, like four out of the maybe 10 people I talked to were like, oh, I can't do the study. I can't do the study. I was like, what do you mean you can't do the study? Well, you don't like giving blood? And they're like, no, I'm on birth control. They won't let me do the study because I'm on birth control. I had another person say they won't let me do the study because I gave birth a few years ago. So in all fairness, in all fairness, I think it should be addressed that the chemicals in your body are going to be different. And that makes it so much harder to narrow down the results. In a previous episode that we talked with um, June, we were talking about our uh, experiment with ramen noodles and trying to make everything as similar as possible. Uh, we discussed that by limiting the variability, we're able to get more direct results. So if we have all of these uh, people with different hormone levels, they're taking this birth control, they've been pregnant, I could see how that would discourage a scientist from wanting to include a diverse population. Yeah, that is a huge deal right now. Um, even in 2020, there are a lot of scientists who say, Listen, females add a lot of variability to our research, and that is one of the top cited reasons that people don't study females at all, and they are just looking in males. We, we have a huge problem when the population that we're studying is so limited so that you can get quote-unquote statistically significant data, which might mean absolutely nothing to the large majority of the world who, who you would hope is, is being served by whatever product you're creating. So I think this is a, a really great time to bring up that um, you and I are white scientists. Um, I personally, my parents are, um, they both have several degrees and I am in the best position for a woman to be a scientist. I have everything going for me. And there are a lot of people who are not in that position. Not only are they women, but they also come with all of these other uh, components of themselves. And that intersectionality is really important to consider. So when we're talking about who's in these studies, a lot of times studies are conducted on college campuses and the most prestigious quote unquote um, studies are published in these really fancy journals and they will come from Ivy League universities. 
And we all know that there is a huge racial discrepancy among the and 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 income discrepancy and so many discrepancies among the people who are being studied at those universities who volunteer for studies. So you said that a lot of these uh, publications, they come out of these really Ivy League schools, the schools that have a lot of money, the schools that typically tend to be predominantly male, predominantly white and predominantly wealthy. Um, uh, students and they have a lot of money these labs and they're able to do research fast and they're reputable they're really good so they get published in what we call top tier journals or high impact factor journals um, and, and that does not mean that no one else can get into these journals but these journals become like the gold standard so in sense the material that we look up to is then used to write our papers and the papers that are written about our papers and papers and papers and papers and papers down this chain. So we are perpetuating this kind of bias through generations and generations of science because they're coming out of places that tend to be a little bit more biased. Would you say that that's more or less correct? For sure. It's really hard to break the chain because you have um, when when you're a funding agency, so someone who gives money for researchers to do their work, um, you have to make a decision. Who am I going to give this money to? I only have a limited amount of money and all these people are doing such amazing work. Well, I know that this person has a history of publications that are in great journals that are high. Lo lots of people cite them, so they reference them when they're doing their own work. And they come from a lab that has also been really impressive. And so I know that's a safer bet than this new lab with this young investigator. And who knows whether they're going to be producing really amazing results. That's more of a risky bet. And so this is the kind of uh, mental math that is being done every time uh, someone from a historically um, disadvantaged population is coming into research and trying to break into the system that is set up kind of against them. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to is that this system has been built by a certain population of people and it more or less uh, serves a certain population of people. And every day we are trying to kind of break down that wall and uh, let the floodgates open and, and make it more accessible and equal to all peoples, but it's not an easy job. So realistically, the work you're doing every single day in the lab is like taking a chisel to this massive wall. So like one, thank you. <laughs> but two, I can only imagine that you are overcoming so many extra hurdles just because you want to study gender than anyone who would be studying a very similar thing in rats. Well, the good news is that um, the world is kind of catching up and the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, these, these large government organizations that are uh, providing money for a lot of people to do their research, they um, in the past few years have actually made it so that you have to say whether you're studying both males and females and why you're not studying females if, if you're not when you're asking for money from them. So at least you have to acknowledge that you're not studying females. And so now there's a little bit more culture and this might just be 
um, my perspective at, at University of Massachusetts because that's why I chose this university because they, they have a really great um, sex study core. Um, but there is kind of a social pressure of, oh, you just presented this wonderful talk are you doing any of this in females or is it entirely male? And that question is asked regularly, at least in our sphere of influence. And rightfully so. Like that's, that's so amazing that we're, we're finally making strides into this. And I'm so excited to see really what comes of this. I mean, I know that I just filled out a very long scholarship application and it said like, how are you including gender in uh, your studies? And I said, not applicable. But I mean, in all fairness, I don't study anything alive. Right. So, uh, you know, corn can't be male or female. Oh, wait, don't tell an agriculturist I said that. That's probably not true. <laughs> I don't know these things. So uh, in in efforts to really shine like a bright light on women in science, as we close out today's episode, I want to, one, acknowledge that I've only had female science advisors. My bosses have always been women, and, and I have been really privileged to uh, experience that because, well, one, I know that my advisor occasionally listens, so I'm not trying to get brownie points, but, like, I kind of am. Shout out. Shout out. But, <laughs> but no, realistically, there's a lot of women in science, and there's women in the past who have been sort of erased from science, which is a real shame. Yeah, great news. In 2020, we have our first Nobel Prize to two women. Woo! First ever, people. You know, two men have won before. And in fact, what a phenomenal segue to our good friend, a erased female from history, Rosalind Franklin. Yeah. Rosalind Franklin is the woman who did a majority, if not all, of the work behind discovering the structure of DNA, mostly attributed to two men named Watson and Crick. Yep. Um, and they both won the Nobel Prize at the same time. But in 2020 is the very first time that two women ever won? Yeah, that's 2020. Crazy. Like 2020, guys, this is not, you know, you know, we, we could say that, you know, genders are equal, but when it comes down to it, are they really? Exactly. I mean, there's some controversy about um, how there was a man that could have also been awarded that prize and he was left off of the list. And, and so, you know, what what does that mean? Oh, my gosh, controversial. I personally don't care because of all of the years of women being left off. I think we can handle one man being left off at, at one point so that we can finally in 2020 have two women alone who have earned this as much as any of the previous recipients have earned it. Yeah, and you will always have people saying the not friendliest things about this. Um, and I think one thing that's super important when you're listening to critique is that we really keep a level head about it. And we realize that the accomplishments of scientists are accomplishments. Facts are facts. But at the same time, there is a lot of social influence that goes into your ability to succeed. For sure. So whenever hearing this kind of criticism, take a step back, take a deep breath and think to yourself, how much more difficult was it to achieve what these two women have achieved? And uh, hopefully that brings a little bit of calm to your to your heart when uh, hearing criticism about men that might have been led, left off this list because they were men. 
Yeah. I mean, it goes down to every aspect of the job. You have to be on on committees with different people who might be trying to swing their weight around as as a, an established man in the field. And and, you know, if, if they disagree with you, are they going to try to intimidate you into agreeing with them? Or do you do you even um, do you even dare to go against them because that's your reputation and they ha- they're very respected in the field. So, you know, th- these are the kinds of instances that are commonly occurring even today and constantly in all different levels when you're reviewing papers, when you're submitting applications. It's just all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, we are in science. We are a very egotistical field. Yeah, we have a lot of big players, and they have uh, delicate and fragile egos, to say the least. So it's a tread lightly kind of a situation. And hopefully, we can really just break through those barriers in the next years and open up the world to uh, gender, racial uh, orientation, religious, socioeconomic equity among the sciences. Yeah, I want to say this has been a very negative uh, talk, but there we have a lot of reason to be optimistic because since since all of these new regulations have, have come into play about, you know, considering females in your studies, we have pretty much doubled the number of female and male comparative studies that are being conducted. And, and that is huge, even though we're still under 50% in, in, in most fields, you know, it used to be 25%. And now we're at 50. Only in a, in a decade, we've made that huge leap. So the future is looking bright. That to me sounds like a moral of the story. Like normally, I'm going to ask that but you just answered that is the moral of the story. Every day we get a little bit better. And we are opening up opportunities for people all around the world to participate in this beautiful field of science. And uh, honestly, Emma, you you are a soldier in the field. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily refer to myself that way, but I think I think that a, a moral could also be phrased as um, make make science as inclusive as possible, because then the the results of that work are going to be as inclusive as possible. They're going to apply to more of the world and that's kind of the goal yeah that's the goal to be inclusive well i can't wait to see what comes out in the future i think that we are going to have a lot of uh interesting things on our hands we are going to be able to see a side of science that we have really never seen before and that is super exciting for sure so I want to thank you so much for having this conversation with us. This has been a little bit different than our typical programming, but I think so, so interesting. I've had so much fun. Thanks so much for asking me to be on the show. Whenever I have a conversation with Emma, I know it's going to be a good one. Whether it's at a party or during a radio interview, she always has such an interesting perspective on how things are going on in the world. Today we talked about the role of women in science, how there is a disparity between men and women in academia, and in the articles published by academia. Both Emma and I are still both in school, and therefore we don't know everything. That's why the show is called We Know Some Stuff. And since we only know some stuff, it's worth elaborating on some of the stuff that we mentioned in the middle of the show. A few fact-check items on the docket for today. First, in the introduction, I said that Emma studies mice. 
I was later told by Emma that she studies rats. Well, I don't know about anyone else. I didn't know there was a big difference because I've lived in apartments that both have mice and rats and they're all equally terrible. Also, when describing the differences between men and women in pharmaceutical studies, I use the word metabolical, which is not a word. It sounds more like metabolism and diabolical put together. The word we're looking for there was metabolic. Right after our conversation, Emma messaged me with a research article. Of course, because one, science never sleeps. But because she wanted to be able to put some numbers behind what she was talking about in the show. And yeah, it took me like maybe a week or so to finally actually read it, but it had some very interesting information. So reading from a journal article that has been titled Meta Research, a 10-year follow-up of study of sex inclusion in the biological sciences, which was authored by three female scientists, mentions the justifications for single-sex studies in the many 720 articles that they performed this meta-analysis on. Some of those justifications included the potential for increased experiment variability, experimental conditions which limited the use of both sexes, and difficulties in animal husbandry. The one, of course, we want to highlight is variability. So, as Emma mentioned in the show, and I commented on, the variability that is brought about from using female and male subjects comes down to a number of different things in the body. The thing that I stated was the metabolism, which is the how we process energy in our bodies. But also worth noting are a number of other things that affect hormones, bone density, and the probability of a male or female having a specific disease. Like how breast cancer and osteoporosis are more prevalent in female populations, and men more commonly have esophageal and liver cancer, which can be tied back to lifestyle choices that differ between men and women. More or less, what I'm trying to say is that this stuff is really complicated. We can't take it at face value. So in order to clarify what we're talking about, in order to fact check ourselves, we need to be able to look outside of the box. And then after I read that article that Emma sent me, we spent a long time exchanging YouTube videos of rats eating food. So to end things today, here's a snippet of a little bit of the passion that Emma shows for mice. There is an excellent video online of, of a rat eating some spaghetti. So if you're interested in that, it's really cute. They, they're adorable when they eat. But <laughs> Oh my God, you do study mice. I could tell That's, that you're one, of, you're one of those people. Yeah, yeah, the rodent neuroscientist coming out again. Thanks for listening to either your first, another, or hopefully not your last episode of We Know Some Stuff.